So, can you take out your Bibles or your phones um, as we're going to start by reading Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. So, Mark chapter 10, 42 to 45. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. We're now going to start at the beginning of 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This chapter leads us into looking at the birth of Samuel. And there's a lot of names, so please forgive me if I mispronounce things as we go. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children. But Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house, In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head." As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. 
Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. Good leaders at every level make a big difference to our quality of life. It's true today. It's always been true. But good leaders can be hard to find. Many families are crying out for good leadership. Many churches are in ruins because of bad leadership. A steady stream of scandals means that confidence in our elected leaders is at a very low ebb. There is understandable cynicism, especially in the media, towards those in leadership. We want good leaders. But what does that actually mean? How would you fill in the blank? I'm longing for a leader. We really want a leader. Definitely a safe leader. We want someone who has our best interests at heart, who won't use and abuse those they're supposed to be looking after. Do you want a strong leader? There's often strong opposition to just and compassionate decisions, so maybe a strong leader would be good. How about a wise leader? That's better than the alternative. I could go on. And even after we've clarified the kind of leader we want, how do we identify that person? Because it's not that unusual that an apparently capable, confident, caring person turns out to be incompetent, even conniving and corrupt. The shiny exterior hides a rotten heart and a lot of people get hurt. Here's the key question. Who can we turn to? Who can we trust to lead us to a place of real security and blessing? This morning, we start a new series in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. We're going back more than 3,000 years to a time when this issue of leadership was front and centre for God's people Israel. They were only a young nation. God had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt about 250 years earlier under the strong leadership of Moses. And after he died, they entered the land of Canaan, their promised land, 
under the leadership of Joshua. After he died, things became much more unstable. Israel would not remain faithful to God. And so God disciplined them, but also rescued them by raising up a series of judges. These judges varied greatly as to the quality of their leadership. The book of Judges closes with this summary. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. In other words, anarchy reigned. It was not a pretty picture. The last few chapters of the book of Judges are horrific. There was a crisis of leadership in Israel. What kind of leadership did this young, messed up nation need? We have to remember that Israel was special. They were God's chosen people. They were descended from one man, Abraham. God had promised Abraham that his offspring would become a great nation. And through him, blessing would flow to the whole world. So what kind of leadership did God's own people need? Most importantly, what difference does God make to the kind of leader and the choice of leader for God's people? The answers that 1 Samuel unfolds are fascinating. We will meet three important leaders. Samuel, a prophet and the last of the judges. Saul, the first king of Israel. And David, Israel's greatest Old Testament king. And we'll see that God's answer for Israel's leadership woes turn out to be his answer for the whole world and for each one of us personally. But I'm jumping ahead. The story begins with a crisis for a certain family. 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man from Ramataim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And if those names don't mean a whole lot to you, I think that's the point. This man was nobody special. He didn't come from anywhere famous. Now, he might have been from Bethlehem, but that wasn't a claim to fame at this point in the Bible story. His family troubles, though tragic, are not that unusual. As we will see, this story is about a God who makes something out of nothing. Life out of death. Somebody out of nobody. God chooses to intervene in the troubles of this obscure family. Elkanah was a faithful Israelite. Year after year, as God had commanded, he took his family to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. That's where the priests and the tabernacle and the ark were located at this time. They were faithful within Israel. But that did not mean that all was well. Far from it. The writer draws us in to consider sad, childless Hannah and her misery. It is a deep grief that she cannot have children. Some of us will know what that pain is like. Elkanah has taken a second wife, Panina, and she's had no problems having children. 
she makes Hannah's life even more miserable by taunting and provoking her. Elkanah is tender and thoughtful, but he's helpless to change the situation. And hanging over them all was this awareness that the Lord had closed her womb. This was a tragedy for Hannah in particular and for her family. And they knew that this was not the way that things should have been. Following the giving of the law at Mount Sinai in Deuteronomy 7, Moses said, If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord God will keep his covenant of love with you. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb. None of your men or women will be childless. Israel was different from every other nation on earth. They were the blessed people. This grief should not have been found among God's people if they had been obedient. But they were far from obedient. The nation was in a shockingly bad place at the end of the book of Judges. Hannah's troubles are representative of Israel's troubles. She is caught up in the judgment of God that has fallen on disobedient Israel. But this sad, desperate state of affairs is about to change. One day, verse 9, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Hannah's been passive up till this point in the story, but now she acts. In particular, she prays. In her deep anguish, verse 10, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. She pours out her troubles to God and she pleads with God to give her a son. Hannah knew that God is sovereign. He's in control of everything that happens in life, the good as well as the bad. But her suffering did not drive her to fatalism. Well, I've just got to passively accept my lot in life. And it doesn't result in resentment. If God's done this to me, then I don't want anything to do with him. No, she responds with faith, trusting that the God who is sovereign is also good and loving towards those who love him. Faith in God led Hannah in her suffering to pray to the one who can turn it all around. Her attitude is, if God has closed my womb, then he can open it again. Where does that kind of faith come from? There's a big hint in the language of her prayer in verse 11. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. Hannah's words here echo the language of God's dealing with Israel in the past. When God rescued his people out of Egypt in the days of Moses, he said, Exodus 3, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I am concerned about their suffering. Or Deuteronomy 26, then we cried out to the Lord and the Lord heard our voice and saw our 
misery, toil and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Hannah begged for God to do for her what he had done for Israel previously. Hannah's faith was confidence based on her knowledge of what God had done and what God is like. Hannah's prayer is the turning point in this story. This prompts the conversation with Eli, the priest. Eli gives her his blessing. Verse 17, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. Hannah's despair lifts. She returns home and the Lord remembered Hannah. Verse 20, so in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. And asked the Lord to remember her, and he did. What does she mean by this? Hannah clearly believes that God knows and controls all things. Her song in chapter 2 really underlines this. We'll have a look at that in a moment. Her prayer is not intended to wake up a God who's somehow forgotten to care for her. Again, this is language from earlier in the Bible story. When God remembered his people in the past, Noah in the days of the flood, Abraham when he destroyed Sodom, Rachel when she conceived Joseph, this meant that he acted powerfully to keep his promises and save his people. And as we'll see, this is exactly what God is doing in the birth of Samuel. Hannah's heartfelt prayerfulness is definitely a good example for us. She cast her cares on the Lord, knowing that he cares for her. And he did. But we need to be a bit careful about just seeing these characters, Hannah, Elkanah and the rest, as examples or of taking away from this story that every time we're downcast, if we pray earnestly to the Lord, then we will get what we ask for. I'm guessing that you already know in your own life that doesn't always happen. There must have been many other childless women in Israel at that time, some of whom prayed sincerely for a child and yet were not given a child. The story is here not because it is typical, but because Hannah's story is so unusual. Of all the troubled women in Israel, the Lord chose to grant the prayer of this one. See, this story is not mainly about Hannah or Elkanah or even Samuel. It is mainly about God. God cared for Hannah. And it turns out, as the story unfolds, that God's care for Hannah turns out to be God's care for Israel too. God cares about the leadership of his people Israel. And so he gave Hannah a son. Hannah has more to teach us about her God, who is also our God. So come with me over to chapter 2, and I'm going to invite Rachel to come and read the first 11 verses of chapter 2 for us. Hey, I'm Rachel Box, and I'll be reading from 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 to 11. 
Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the, war, the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the law of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. This is an incredibly rich description of the Lord God. Let me just draw out a few key points. First, there is no one like him. He is unique in his holiness, his strength, in his sovereign rule. This God cannot be compared with anything else that might be the focus of our hopes, our confidence, our dreams. Nowhere else will you find goodness as perfect as the holiness of the Lord. Nowhere else will you find security as sure as our God provides. Hannah knew this. Do you? And this awesome, sovereign, creator God, he knows. Verse 3, Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. The Lord is not watching from a distance as our world revolves in space. He knows all. He sees all. He weighs every intimate detail, the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. There are no secrets from him. So proud people, beware. We might fool others, but not God. So secondly, the sovereign God who knows will turn the world upside down. Our world glories in wealth and comfort and physical strength. And if this world was all that there is, those aspirations would make perfect sense. But there is more to this world. This is God's world. He rules, he knows, and he will judge the ends of the earth. God promises to tear down the arrogant and the wicked, those who trust in their own strength. And he will lift up the poor, the hungry, the desperate, faithful ones. Verse 8, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. 
what God did for poor Hannah 3,000 years ago, silencing the taunts of her rival, turning her misery to joy, he will one day do on a grand scale. Are you ready for the great reversal? And all of this leads up to the climax of Hannah's prayer, which becomes a surprising prophecy in verse 10. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. It is surprising that Hannah should speak of God's king. His Messiah is the word she uses. At that time, there was no king in Israel. The one time that kingship had been attempted with Abimelech, son of Gideon, back in Judges chapter 9, it was a complete disaster. But God had promised that kings would come from Abraham, Genesis 17. Balaam had prophesied the coming of a king in Numbers. And Deuteronomy chapter 17 included instructions about the kind of king Israel was were to set over them when the time came. Whatever her inspiration, Hannah's prophecy raises the right questions for us as we keep reading. Who is this promised king? How will God exalt the horn of his anointed? It's an exciting story with many twists and turns. I want to finish up today by thinking a bit more about our response to this God and to his king. Because the God of Hannah's song is our God. He has not changed in 3,000 years. But we know much more about him than Hannah did. We know the name of God's Messiah, the greatest king of all, whose kingdom will never end. Hannah's song helps us to see that Jesus of Nazareth is God's chosen king. When he came, the world was not impressed. He was a poor man from the back of beyond. He lived a humble life, serving others, all the way to a humiliating death on a cross. But Jesus' resurrection confirmed what Hannah sang about. God has exalted the horn of his anointed. The way God works in Jesus is consistent with the God that Hannah describes. He powerfully turns the world upside down. Jesus, the crucified one, is also the risen and glorified Lord of all. And all who trust in him will find rescue and justice and will inherit a throne of honour. Who can we turn to? Who can we trust to lead us to a place of real security and blessing? God's King, the Lord Jesus. I want to speak directly to two groups. First, to the strong and self-confident. Those of you who think of yourself as winners, perhaps you are naturally talented. You have succeeded in life. You've got some popular influences that you look up to, but God, he's not really one of them. Friends, it's so easy to get sucked into this pattern of life. We are so wealthy. 
The current drags us to be like everyone else. And God's word says to us, be warned. God sees. God knows. And one day, God will tear down the proud and self-confident. It's not too late to humble yourself before the Lord. He has sent a saviour, the Lord Jesus. Call out to God in prayer for him to save you. There is no prayer that he delights to answer more than that prayer. And then rely on him in prayer each day for strength and guidance. Second, to those of you who know that you are desperate and needy, Perhaps you feel the heavy weight of your sin or you're struggling with grief or poverty or mistreatment at the hands of unbelievers. If that's you, take heart. God knows. God cares. He has sent a saviour and that changes everything. One day, God will lift up his faithful ones and exalt the needy. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. Hannah experienced a taste of that reversal in the gift of her son. Not everyone has the same experience in this life, but ultimately, eternally, real security, real blessing awaits all who follow Christ. Friends, the promises of God are a better foundation for life than our own cleverness or strength. God's promises in in Christ give us strength to patiently endure hardship, to deny ourselves, to lovingly serve others here and now. And they ought to fill us with joy, like Hannah. We know we are loved. We know that all will be well in the end. Let me finish by reading Jesus' words to his disciples from Matthew chapter 5. Again, he's speaking about this great reversal that God will bring about for those in his kingdom. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our hearts are filled with joy. We delight in your deliverance. 
We praise you for exalting your King, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for sending us the Saviour we desperately need, for making us rich through his poverty, for giving us life through his death. Father, we gladly humble ourselves before you. We trust in your promises, your goodness, your timing. Please teach us to rest in you more and more each day. Please give us strength to patiently endure hardship, to faithfully serve, to rejoice while we wait for your kingdom to come in all its glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.